Welcome to Window Gazing, the podcast where two TikTokers talk about different subjects, sometimes economy, sometimes health, sometimes politics. I'm Brown. My co-host is Contratenor. In this episode, we are talking about the meaninglessness of modern working life as it entangles itself with capitalism. And we talk a little bit about community living and disasters in this episode. One of the things that we both love about our conversations is we are always going into different topics that just naturally entangle themselves with the topic we're trying to talk about. So I hope you enjoy the episode. So I would like to talk about um, sort of the meaninglessness of capitalism and the meaninglessness of going to a job every day. I saw a TikTok video this week that said, I feel like my entire generation is just existing to make it so that our depression doesn't win. And that's (laughs) dark, man. (laughs) It's bad. Well, like, yeah, I just... um... It's not, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to describe because I don't want to say my job is meaningless. Like it's not meaningless yeah. in the sense that the actual goal of what we do, uh, I think is full of meaning. And, you know, I did a TikTok earlier this week. It's, it's not that it's, it's, it's not that it lacks meaning. It's that people don't seem to be able to understand that you can have a job where the stakes are important. I don't want to say high, but like that the ability to do your job successfully matters in a material way to a lot of people. And I would say that my job is in that category, but that does not also mean that we need to treat our jobs as if we are storming the beaches at Normandy all the time, you know? And I think this is my issue. You know, I work in a, I work for a very conservative institution. Um, Mm. It's a public institution. And I think there are some things that we need to be reverent about in the work that we do. But there's also this just feeling sometimes when I'm in these meetings, particularly with people who are at the executive level. And there's this this like palpable air of seriousness and uh, reverence for for everything that's going on. And I find uh, I start to struggle to breathe (laughs) in these meetings. You know what I mean? Because like, this is how I feel comfortable. This is how I like to think. And I don't, I hate having, I'm really bad at putting on the work face thing, you know? Um, And I realized these are really boring uh, observations that people have had for generations, but I just feel, um, it's not that I think that we need to abandon. It's not even like, I think all our jobs are bullshit. You know, like every time I say stuff like this, everyone comes out saying, Oh, you got to read Graber's David Graber's bullshit jobs. And I like, remember I, I read that book, like the week that it came out, which is really funny. Cause I was really feeling it at the time, but I don't necessarily think all of our jobs are bullshit. I just think that we go into work with this very live action role play, uh, work face corporate mentality. And I feel like that in some ways, almost worsens the stress uh, of what should be sort of seen as like a normal day-to-day job kind of thing. I don't know, do you know what I mean a little bit? Absolutely. I I do think most of our jobs are uh, bullshit. I didn't need to read the book. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've always thought this. Uh, someone told me when I started in marketing, 
did you know that everybody would be better off if marketing didn't exist? <laughs> right? Yeah. Because the only reason it exists is so that people with more money can make their product be in front of people. And so if marketing was not allowed to exist, if you were not allowed to advertise, then the naturally best products could float to the top. But instead, you have this crowded field of people trying to get your attention. And so now everybody has to do marketing, but yeah. everybody would be better off if nobody did marketing. And I always feel that I am, because everything about me is constructed around authenticity. That's a way to understand me. And I work in a very inauthentic field. And it's really helped me because I don't take it seriously. And that's yeah. the only way that I, I would have been able to survive. Um, I See, I'm so have... jealous, so jealous. Cause I, there's some, I feel like I had some childhood trauma or something like this is always the go-to line, but I feel like something happened at some point where like, I feel cause all of my work motivation is fear-based, like not externally. Mm. Right. Like all my bosses are smiley and nice. And we have like a lot of, cause we work in this public institution. There's a lot of like verbal sort of acknowledgement of mental health issues, but it doesn't matter. Right. Like if I go into a meeting with someone who's like two levels up above me, I, I am nervous, like, probably 48 to 72 hours beforehand, right? Even though I know, even though I know I shouldn't take it seriously and that I know mentally like, oh, it's just a job and you should, but it, it, it's some, it's some weird thing where it's like, I'm going back to being a five-year-old being called into the principal's office or something. Anyway. Absolutely. Everything is constructed around um, kind of us going in and, and playing business businessy white man you know you, yeah. you talked about I think you talked about uh work cosplay that like the bosses want you in the office just so that we can all like do a play together and I loved that yeah I, yeah, I mean not... that's what it is it's what yeah, it is I still, I still agree like near each other and typing you know like yeah. people should people can get their work done anywhere uh and if they can't then an office should be available some people just work better when they're near people i'm like that um, yeah. but i'm i'm really lucky that i've not i've decided not to try to engage with something that i had to pretend to be interested in or pretend to take seriously because i just cannot i cannot get any motivation to pretend that any of this means anything. Um, and it's so incredibly, incredibly meaningless to me that I have to be careful not to visit there very often. And so the place that I get meaning for uh, my work is that I get to help someone who's trying to get something accomplished. And overall, the their overall goal may be misguided. It may be to sell somebody something that they don't need that's manufactured out of plastic. That's just going to choke us all. Right. Yeah, uh, but in the moment, the yeah, in the moment I'm helping someone and I'm, I'm providing a service and that's kind of where I've had to go mentally, because if I go too far down that road, I'm just like, none of us should be spending our time doing this. We should all be replanning an economy that is degrowth centered and like just all that. Um, yeah. Well, sometimes I wonder, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, sometimes I wonder if it's, 
if it's this holdover, like, especially with, because you mentioned the in-office thing. And I think especially with the fact that most sort of middle to higher income jobs now in, in North America and probably Europe are service industry based, right? And so we've transitioned from an economy where it was like the Marxist notion of labor, where you're literally going into a factory, you're completely alienated from the means of production, and uh, you're just like cranking out widgets for a set period of time until your body falls apart and you're allowed to go home and sleep and eat and then come back and do it again. Like obviously the service, you know, uh, or office office based work doesn't work like that, right? Like my job is incredibly iterative. So, you know, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, there are days when I might have two very small tasks that I need to take care of and everything else is like waiting in someone else's office for whatever reason and I can't do anything until it comes back. And then there's like days that I've had like this week where everyone is constantly on call all the time and it's go, 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 you know? So, and I feel like there's something about, we have not escaped the sort of root culture of this Protestant work ethic where we still consider ourselves as working in factories and we're not that anymore. So I think people are seeing to see, well, if people are able to work in this iterative fashion at home where they're doing laundry sometimes or they're taking their dog for a walk because they're able to, it's like, no, that we can't have that. Like, that's not what labor is. And then we start to see like, maybe these jobs are kind of bullshit, you know what I mean? And like, maybe we're, we're starting to understand that as opposed to the way that capitalists think, which is that we're all working to this end of, producing things and growing the economy and creating wealth for the capitalists. In fact, maybe we're just working because we all just need to have stuff and live our lives. And like, that's like, no, no, we can't, we can't have the edifice slip away, you know? So I just always, always wonder if that's why that that's really like the root, like beyond all the stuff about real estate and all the stuff we tend to hear about why managers want people to go back in the office. I think it's because there's a real fear that, our culture of our and our understanding of what work actually is will forever erode unless we see work as a brick and mortar place that we punch in at nine and punch out at five, you know, anyway. I have so much to say about that. Uh, <laughs> I have never worked a factory, factory job. I've never worked eight hours at a factory and then gone home and done that five days in a row. So I have limited to say limited amounts of things to say about how that compares to office work. However, I, I can talk about it if you want. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I will. Yes. Hang on. Um, <laughs> however, I will say if, if you work in a factory, you get to leave work at work. And what I learned when I opened my business is that I traded the physical labor of making coffee for the uh, emotional and mental labor of carrying a business all the time. And when you own a business, there's always something you could be doing. You could be registering your trademark or answering your email emails and you never get to escape it. It's there with you at home. People are texting you, people are emailing you. You can't open up your email, right? To check other things, personal things. And I think that we've traded the physical labor for the mental labor and the mental labor is just as exhausting, just in a different way. And I think that's the essence of our burnout these days is that people can get at us in a way that they never could in the previous, uh, you know, we've had this for about 20 years, you know, in this form and carrying that load is I think more expensive and we get paid better to do this kind of work. Um, but the burden we carry is also more. And I've never found a job that pays more that is not in equal amounts of stress. 
So you and I do low task jobs today. Like I don't do much design work anymore. Even I just manage people who are doing design work. I'm like a man, I'm like a middle manager and I have to worry about the billing and the bookkeeping and the, the mental load of it all. And everybody else just gets to come to work. And I miss just going to work and I may not do very much. I may work two hours a day, but I have to tell you, I'm constantly burned out and I, I couldn't figure out why. And it's the, the mental stress of trying to figure out what to do all the time. That's yeah. Uh, It's so hard to describe to people who don't, who don't have do creative work that, and I, it's like you, even when you say it, it sounds like you're kind of bullshitting, but you're not like, um, like I wake up at 6.30 every morning and the first thing I think of is, oh shit, I have to do X, Y, Z at work, right? Even if it's not even a particularly busy work week, it's like, I have to think, it's just, it's this invisible mental load of responsibility that you just carry with you. And it, you know, because in my work, not to like give away precisely what I do, but you know, there's certain things that if I don't do them, a lot of money will not change hands. Like tens of millions of dollars will not change hands unless I hit a particular deadline. And then on top of that, like a lot of what I need to do to complete my work is reliant on other people supplying me with information that I need. Right. So there's so much that's unknown and up in the air that I have to sort of constantly chase after. And as much as in my office, we have like project managers, like it doesn't matter, like you're owning your file one way or another. So unless you are sort of thinking about it all the time, and I don't know, uh, it's, a, it's a much made fun of book, but there's a great um, characterization of one of the characters in Infinite Jest, uh, um, which is, the I, it's like the principal of this tennis academy. He sort of talks about how he's a reverse, Buddha, reverse Buddhist. So instead of like feeling detached from everything, he like hyper attaches himself to everything. So he like, he feels as much stress as humanly possible because that's the only way he can sort of get a sense of control over his world. And I feel sometimes... Mm-hmm that's how my brain naturally works. And it's, so it sounds stupid. So if you're actually say like, in terms of like what you would constitute creative labor during the day, i.e. sitting in front of a computer and writing things, it's not that much, but you know, um, the actual mental work that goes into ensuring that when I sit down, um, that I'm actually able to produce something is like 24 seven, you know, 24 seven. And I can't remember who said it. I want to say it's it's um, it was E.B. White. It might have been someone else. But I, I think it was E.B. White who said, you know, 90% of writing is thinking first, right? And so his whole thing was before you can sit down and put pen to paper, um, th- there's a tremendous amount of mental work that has to happen beforehand. And I think that's what people don't understand. And that's that's probably applies to most creatives. Like even people wouldn't consider themselves writers. So... And so not to like go on at length, but having done a factory job, I will say the factory job is not not better in terms of the stress. And there's a general dread of having to go back into the factory the next day, like inescapability. And that's like a thing that I feel like uh, is a little better in office work. But the one thing is, is that after I was done and I left, I knew that I had made something. And then when I had a beer, it was like the best tasting beer I've ever had. And even office work doesn't let you do that because there's no whistle that blows at five o'clock and you're Mm -hmm. done, you know? So anyway, that's my big, big rant on that. Having done both, I absolutely would trade the 
mental labor for the physical labor again. I don't know if I would ever adjust to the income that it usually means, uh, but I definitely would like to trade the work for that same reason. You said you come home and you feel accomplished. And I started volunteering at a coffee shop after 10 years of not working in uh, restaurants. And I love it. I love when I get to go and do it. It doesn't feel like work to me. And the, the other thing is, is anything that you do as work will become work. A teacher told me that one time. Uh, anything that you decide to do as work becomes work. And then it's not fun anymore because you have to do it. Yeah. There's an aspect of that too. Um, and I've talked to all kinds of creatives that don't want to do creative work anymore for all kinds of reasons. So creative work is not the ultimate pinnacle, but there's also, we live in a container that puts us in stress all the time. And we will tend towards stress even when we uh, intend to rest and I learned that when I read the four hour work week, ironically, and there's a lot of things oh, yeah. that I don't like about Tim, Tim Ferriss and what he espouses. But uh, in that book, he talks about when he first started his business, he worked 16 hours a day and he would just answer emails. And I'll, it was a lot of fluff and a lot of stuff that wasn't actually making him money. And he just would take part in it because he thought he was being productive. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, he realized he didn't have to do this. He could just optimize it and just answer emails once a week. And he was like, well, the people who didn't want to deal with me answering my emails once a week, they just didn't work with me anymore. And I just worked with different yeah. clients who were okay with it. And so I think, and I've seen in my own life, when I try to not operate from a stressful place, I constantly revert back into that stressful place. It's similar to opening up TikTok and scrolling it. There's some control. There's some having control over emails, getting things done. And I tell this, people this constantly. Um, the way that you engage with your work is the way that you'll engage with any work. It doesn't matter what work you're doing. Um, if you want to be in a stressful place, like you'll put yourself there. And it's a, it's just yeah. a lot to do with our training. Um, this culture is so, it's it's very meaningless to me. And I think the way that we've organized it makes absolutely no sense. And most of it is rooted in the history of, um, you know, patriarchal systems and hierarchical systems. Someone said on TikTok uh, yesterday that the older generation is marching to the beat of a drum that was drummed 30 years ago. Yeah, and I've I would almost often... say like 100 yeah, I've often felt that that's what our government is doing, that they're marching to the beat of a drum that nobody can hear anymore. Yeah. And my hope is that we'll, we'll beat new drums. I used to think about the like, quote unquote, millennial work ethic and how they said like, we didn't work hard. And I used to feel, man, I wish everybody wouldn't work so hard so that it was easier to afford rent like everybody's just out there working so hard to make everybody else work even harder and this like stupid competition thing that we're doing what if everybody decided to stop competing and stop working so hard so the bar could be a little bit lower which would be great for everybody um yeah. why don't we do that and i think that we're doing that um yeah 
and also the way that we prioritize our daily life is different. I think in past generations, people said, well, I got to save for my retirement. I got to make sure that I have money. You know, I build a fortress of money around myself to protect me from any problems. And the uh, people my age, the people our age are saying, I don't know if I'm going to have any of those things, no matter how hard I hustle. So why don't I look after my day-to-day -day quality of living and have something to show for it? Yeah. You know, this is what I tell myself and it just doesn't, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest, it just never works. I don't know why. I, again, this comes back to like this because I basically have the ideal circumstance, right? I'm fully remote. I live, you know, close to nature. I have a lot of time during the day where I can go on walks, but uh, there's still this like guilt, this guilt. And it's like, um, it's hard to describe, but it's just a, uh, this feeling that um, I'm getting away with something. You know what I mean? That I, I'm hmm. because other people have to work in jobs that are much more restrictive or domineering and, you know, why have I, it's like, maybe this sounds really, maybe this is the wrong thing to say, but it's almost like survivor's guilt. You know what I mean? The similar mm -hmm. idea that because I happen to work out an ideal work circumstance in some ways, uh, like I can't let myself off the hook. You, you know what I mean? Mm. Like I always feel like the feeling I have with work has always been that uh, something bad is going to happen. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think that's, that's not a crazy thing for people to think because of the, the, you know, most of the time when people get a job, it's only a matter of time before they'll either be, you know, uh, uh, fired or laid off. Right. That's just, that, that's just the calculus now. So it really, if, and, and it's funny because no jobs will ever acknowledge that openly and employees can't acknowledge it. And we sort of talk about it in hush whispers, but that's really what it is. So we're constantly, I mean, that's what it is. We're being coerced. Like it's, it doesn't matter how smiley face the job is and how nice it is. It's still a situation of coercion, you know? And you talked about like, you talked earlier about like uh, this feeling that we need to be amassing our nest eggs. And, and like, I, I get these emails from my bank and they make me laugh because they assume, oh, you're a 42 year old. Uh, we know your, your income. You must be doing great. And so like, let's talk about your wealth, uh, like I'll get, I'll get emails about estate planning and like, uh, you know what my family wealth plan is. Wow. I'm like, wealth? Like I the, even the term wealth is so far apart from my day-to-day -day experience, yes. you know? And it's so funny. So like who, who is driving this culture? Like, um, I guess maybe there's other 42 year olds who just have their shit way more together than I do, but you know, it's just so funny when I get, when I get these messages and that's generally how I feel. It's just like, I, you know, I, it's like a constant feeling of guilt, a constant feeling that it's not going to be okay. And just, even when things are totally normal and fine, it's just this, it's the stress of like precarity, you know, because if I lose my job tomorrow, you know, it could all change. Like my life would change overnight, you know, it would mm -hmm. be a huge disaster. And I know people say, well, you have to have a six month savings or whatever. Um, but like if I had a six month savings, there'd be a whole other, a lot of things that I would have too. And I would not be in the current situation that I'm in, you know? So anyway. Yeah. You're describing the, the pitfall of either modern capitalism or modern society as a whole, which is somebody else owns my well-being. 
Yeah. And that is not a feature of most human societies uh, prior to Western European, um, I don't know, entry. Yeah. People owned the ability to make sure they were okay. And no matter what level we are at in this system, we don't own our well-being. Nobody does. And some people yeah. try. They move to the country and they buy homesteads and they get animals. And I did this. And I realized, number one, that I needed like 50 people, not two people, to be able to manage land. That was the first thing. The other thing, mm -hmm. I got in my car one day to drive down the road after there had been a windstorm. There were all these branches in the road. And I was like, I cannot drive on this road. Oh, okay. I have no control over my own well-being. Like even a road is in the way of me being able to take care of myself. Like from the, the most simple construction in what we live we are intrinsically dependent on the system itself. And we can try to create new systems within that greater system, but they tend to foil the new systems that we try to create because they're uh, they're discordant. Uh, and so yeah. somebody owns my well-being, no matter what I do, no matter how rich I am. And they try to sell me hustling by saying, if you just build up enough money, your needs will get taken care of. And I have had $20,000 in the bank. And what I said to myself is, wow, I don't feel any safer. I don't yeah. feel like any more <laughs> of my needs are getting met. And so clearly this was not the answer. Yeah. I don't, I don't think any of us will be able to, um, own our well being until the system is completely different. And, they have, you know, other countries have tried to dismantle this system of patriarchy and do something other than capitalism. And it turns out that patriarchy like re hierarchy hierarchies itself. So Marx said, oh, we need to own the means of production as the worker. But then mm -hmm. um, when, you know, when Russia tried to implement socialism, it just ended up that there was some patriarchal figure who was threatening you physically to right. uh, to own your life and to influence what you were going to do. And so there has to be a complete change of mind and we're not there, but we need to keep beating the drum of that so that other people can hear it and recognize it. And um, I don't know, the community house that I've built has been really interesting because it's starting to get rid of some of those things that make me feel so isolated and so um relying on myself for my well-being i can actually rely on other people for my well-being and it has nothing to do with making a romantic relationship work that was always yeah. a hang up for me because i was like okay well i have to make do i have to make a man happy in order to have a partnership <laughs> yeah you know yeah, yeah and exactly that's a big threat because in order to make a man happy, um, women are socialized to, sub to be subordinate and to be um, giving and, and serving of someone. And yeah. it's not an, often an equal partnership. And so that's a big threat to our well-being that we would have to 
the maker relationship work in order to be provided for in any kind of community sense. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I love that we're getting into other topics. Well, I mean, it's all related, right? Like I think about this constantly because, you know, anytime you mention, you know, there's this thing in Vogue that's been in Vogue for a while, which is talking about, you know, as hunter gatherers, we were more like this. And anytime you point that out, people immediately are being like, well, when you were, we were hunter gatherers, people were dying when they were in thirties, but that's not what we mean when we talk about this. Right. And so we were talking about earlier, talking about someone owning your, your well-being and 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 I was talking about the coercion of work and the coercion of, of of the situation we're in and I think you know if you look at earlier you know pre-civilized human societies the groups were a lot smaller but the basic principle was that you participated in the in the group because there was a sense that others were doing uh, work to help the whole community be well and so there was this natural feeling of like guilt and moral quandary if like if I don't work as hard as other people are working in order to mutually provide for the community then then I'm not really doing my part right but and that sounds bad but it, it's just like a, such a better and more understandable motivating principle because there's like an innate understanding that your ability to work within your group your clan or whatever is directly relevant to the, the you know the well-being of yourself and your community together right and we think like that principle is all gone, but it does show up time and time again in modern circumstances. You know, like I remember I said on the TikTok earlier and, and you commented on this made me laugh, but I said, I'm obsessed with tornadoes and I totally am. And uh, the, the, there was a tornado in uh, a town called Mayfield, Kentucky, which is a pretty decent sized town before the tornado hit. And I don't know if you remember, but they were doing, uh, this was like December of 2021. And after this tornado destroyed this town, you could see these um, zone, um uh, drone footage of this, this it looked like it literally looked like a war zone like completely mm -hmm. ripped apart and we hear these stories right and we and uh and even a few weeks after people pay attention because they're like you know people are participating in the cleanup and we all help each other here but it was really interesting to sort of go on google maps and see what the town looks like now and it's still it's still totally in shambles right like mm -hmm. it, there's still debris this is like a year and a half almost two years later after this incident and there's still you know, mounds of debris. And I think um, the issue is never that we are not able to come together to help each other, because that's what happened after Mayfield. Like people from neighboring towns came over, they came over with clothes and shelter and and food and like mutual aid communities just popped up overnight. The, the trouble is like, how do we maintain them over time when like mm. the immediacy of that need dies down? And uh and we we feel and it's the same here with the the fires in 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 Nova Scotia here next door to me in Tantallon, you know that a lot of people's homes burned down and there was an immediate sense that we all needed to get involved and these things happen in these sort of bursts where we see these little windows of possibility of what an alternative to our current system might look like, and then of course we forget all about it and we go back we go because we just get sucked into the you know these atomized units mm -hmm. that we have to exist in under capitalism right so. Um, so again, like, I think when we talk about possible, like communities of possibility and what a different community might look like, it feels really abstract. It feels like a ton of work, but you know, it's, it, it's not like we're incapable of doing them. Right. It's just, we tend to be forced to do them and they, they tend to not last that long. Anyway. The, one of the things about community is that you will sometimes be 
forced is an interesting word, but uh, you'll be taking part in something that you don't necessarily want or believe in. And that's part of being in a group. And that can be really toxic if you're doing community with the wrong people. Yeah. The other part, the other part of being in a community that I think of is there's often a call for more conformity. So conforming to the ideals of your group for the good of the group. And that comes with its own problems. If your group is not cool with gay people, for example. Yeah. So there's, there's some healthy things about our atomized individuality because it allows us to be big um, versions of ourselves and, and be, maybe against what other people want. And that's really cool that we get to figure that out. Um, however, we can also come back together once we've figured out what we are and what we want. And I mean, the difficulty that nations have is getting everybody together to agree on a thing. It's the problem that the US has always had, uh, that we have so many different factions of people and it's weird. Those traditions last hundreds of years Somebody told me that uh, I'm not going to talk about that. It's too far off the topic, but <laughs> trying to get a bunch of people to uh, agree on something when they're from very different cultural uh, viewpoints is, you know, it's really difficult to create consensus and you can't force people to have consensus. And what the U.S. has decided on is propaganda, essentially propaganda through yeah. um, privatized media. And yeah. I loved um, Manufacturing Consent. It's a very boring book, actually, but if yeah. you can get through it, it's very interesting and explains it very well. Um, but it just, the, the meaninglessness of everything that, uh, okay, I have my individuality, but I'm still coerced to work within something that I, that I don't believe in. And I am working with a gun to my head um, to make sure that I have my needs met. And uh, George Carlin said, the only reason that we have the middle class is to be a buffer um, for uh, people who don't want to become the poor. Uh, yeah. And when you stop having the middle class, all of a sudden you don't have this class of people that are just barely above the line, trying to keep, trying to keep the line. If everybody's poor, there will be revolt against the rich because there's nobody has anything to lose anymore. Um, yeah you also touched on the the tornado thing like I have always hoped for disaster and I don't know if that's my trauma like I I, I too have the sense that um, the bottom's always about to fall out and when it does fall out like it makes me feel good because it finally fa happened you know like oh good I knew it I think you're absolutely right in terms of like we should not I think it's really dangerous to see you know, uh, communities of mutual aid and care as like utopias, because they're absolutely not like, um, they come with all sorts of different problems. And you're absolutely right. Like, um, how many times have like, far right religious groups gone off into the woods to create communes that are technically communities of mutual aid and care, but like, you know, <laughs> within an incredibly repressive and odious ideology, right. So, mm -hmm. but I think, when I think in terms of like the situation that we're all in now, you know, and we talk about these creating these communities, it's less about creating a utopia, utopian alternative, but about sort of triaging this low, it's not even low level, but this constant unspoken level of precarity and stress yes. that we're all just, you know, as you say, uh, we're all just a few, what, what's the saying? Like we're all a few accidents away from, from being 
from ending up unhoused more or less something like that but i mean that's the honest truth right like i my brain is very good at coming up with multiple daily scenarios of how if xyz happened this week um i might be out on the street you know mm -hmm. and i have a really good job and i'm in a, you know a nice house and but it's it's just that's just the reality of it you know there's not like a a, a fortune that is sitting somewhere in a bank for me so and I think this, uh, you know, our experience is like the, va the experience with the mass, vast majority of people, we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it in mental health discussions. We don't acknowledge it in terms of like what stresses, out us, uh, stresses us out about work. We don't acknowledge it in terms of like why we're all sort of beholden to the system that we constantly complain about. We well, feel it's, the, down. It's, anyway, go ahead. It's, it's too macro to yeah. even detect. It's, oh, the fish saying, what is water? it's yeah. that <laughs> yeah. um it is so structural it's a part of everything the threat that we could be on the streets and i have lived the life of addiction and probably would have been one of those people and i don't know you know i i decided to burn myself out and become an overachiever and sometimes i think well was that better i don't know yeah. um yeah. also you spoke to this is way off topic but i'm gonna go ahead and say it you spoke to that uh tiktok account that likes to interview very educated and um like eloquent homeless people and you were like i don't know if this is good because a lot of homeless people like it's okay to love and respect the humanity of people who are not eloquent and not educated and dirty and whatever that is and alcoholic. Uh, and we should respect the humanity of those people too. The, the fact, just the fact that homelessness exists and we walk by it and are not allowed to express our human um, empathy and devastation really at seeing this happening like how wrong must the world be that this is happening and that we just have to walk by it and not engage with the people because if we engaged with every single person it would it would run out all of our time like just the fact that we have to walk by that is um is is really devastating to me because i i have a heart that that just wants to help everybody and and the system in which i live often requires me to numb myself to the the tragedies that are happening. Um, I'm not able to have full heartfulness. And when you're trying to reconnect to your heart, you're constantly exposed to things in this culture that would push you back into dissociation. And it's, yeah. uh, it's really dark. And I, I think to some degree, we busy ourselves with our work uh and as time goes on i want to devote myself more and more to the causes of helping other people i think it's rare to have someone who has lived mostly a life of not desperation and not destitution to want to like engage with it at all i know plenty of um i guess girls in my same station who are completely oblivious to what's happening and to me it feels like the only meaningful thing and everything else that I do is um just like kind of background noise 
and something that I take part in in order to tread water long enough to stay alive. But yeah. I am completely uh, reorganizing my life to make that happen as much as possible. Here in Portland, it's really fun because a lot of people believe in that stuff. And you can find refrigerators on the sidewalk. Someone has strung up uh, an extension cord and they've put it in front of their house. And then you can just, it's the free fridge. And then there are other people who prep meals and then bring them to the fridge. And I uh, have been growing plants in my hydroponic system. And then I, I pot the plants and then I bring them to the free station. And um, yeah, there, there are a lot of beliefs in basically just doing little things that don't operate in capitalism to add a little bit of meaningfulness to life. Uh, because the way that yeah. I look at it is any amount that I try to play into the system, I am furthering the goals of the system. I'm furthering the existence of the system. And the less that I play into them, the more that I hope the system will fail or will collapse. Uh, I think historically, that's not what has happened. There's just been a reorganization and always the the little guy gets a little bit shorter of a stick. So yeah, yeah it's such a complex issue to describe. Also on the, the disaster thing, like when the pandemic happened, I, I felt the same thing, just like, oh good, like it's, yeah. it, does, it doesn't you work. You feel so bad, but you know, you feel so bad for feeling that way, but it's just like, sometimes you just feel like it's, it's, uh, you just feel like we need an external shock like that sometimes, um, to remind us all that it, that this isn't all there is, you know, that, that, that nothing is necessarily finite and secure in the way that people convince ourselves that it is, um, in and terms of the, you, unha oh, sorry, go ahead. I think you see it in the climate change porn that is mm. all around the internet, just like, look at all these floods, look at all these fires. Like it's very yeah. uh, masochistic maybe, or just like, I'm enjoying the pain of seeing everybody suffer because I was right. Like it's very, yeah. you didn't think that it was gonna happen, but it's happening and look how terrible it is. I'm promoting this. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a whole different thing that we could talk about. At length, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, uh, I have a lot of, I have a lot of problems with the uh, doom, doom porn that's like big on TikTok. You know, um, the thing that always traumatizes me the most about climate change is when they do those things where they have a microphone in the in you know in in Central America in a Central American jungle. Um, you know, jungle in the 1970s, and they'll put the same microphone in today, and and it's half the sound because all half mm -hmm. of the birds and insects have died off, and that's not all just climate change related, although that's a huge. But I mean, that's the kind of thing, and this sounds very like, you know, inhumane because obviously I am deeply concerned with the effects that climate change it, it literally is now already having on 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 yes. the most vulnerable people on Earth. Um, but I mean, that's like, that's always what, I, you know, like natural disasters are one thing and they are going to get worse in some cases. In some cases they won't. You know, there's a lot of people who think that tornadoes are actually going to be less of a thing with climate change mm -hmm. because the Gulf Stream is mm -hmm. one of the big drivers of uh, of um, circulation in these mesocyclones. And um, mm -hmm. and apparently with climate change as the, as the jet stream weakens, some people think that there'll be fewer There'll be more tornadoes, but they'll all be far weaker. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, this is a we're, we're way off topic here, but I just wanted to th this because you mentioned home like unhoused people, and I was thinking because there's so many TikToks that I see of 
of people who will will see someone who's mentally ill on the street in New York and just like and talk about like oh it's a New York day or whatever and it's like someone who's going through a complete horrific mental health crisis and they're like filming it for likes and then I'll read through the comments and like no one thinks that this is bad mm. you know there'll be 10,000 comments and it'll be lol and like mm. crying laughing emojis and I, I just that's when I feel so depressed <laughs> I feel mm. so alone um, because uh, these are human beings, man. Like not just that, mm. but it's just, I really feel like there's this sense that unless like people with mental illnesses are just a lost cause and they're on their own because they, mm. that, you know, we just don't see that they'll ever be helped or they'll ever be like productive. Cause this is always the rubric mm -hmm. in which we view human worth. Yep. And, um, and it's just, I just, it, um, I don't know. I just, I, you mentioned that. And I just remembered that. And, it, you know, we talk about, I just think we make so many deals with ourselves to live mm. in the world that we've chosen to live in now. And one of them is like deciding to see an enormous portion of people in, in cities as sort of walking jokes or walking furniture uh, or part of the character of a city like that's the worst thing of like hey we're in new york or we're in toronto we love our crazy homeless people like that's part of the character of living in a city it's like no this is a crisis like mm -hmm. and this is not a crisis about like um you know like the typical republicans talking about oh cities are dangerous it's, it's nothing to do with safety it's a it's a human hum, you know, like a hum, humanity crisis you know mm -hmm. anyway um and, you know, and again, I'm not someone who's ever been had, like, I don't come from precarious circumstances in that sense, but I just, I don't know. At some point, I just remember thinking that uh, joking about people going through mental illness in public was always really felt super gross to me. Super, super gross. Yeah. Every, every, everything is pushed through a lens of capitalist value. That's the same reason we yeah. say that nonverbal autistic people are uh, low functioning. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're low functioning as a human. It's that they're low functioning yeah. for capitalism. Um, we train babies to sleep at the time that they need to sleep for capitalism. And so there's there's just nothing about the structure we live in that was built for human beings it was it was built for capital and the value system is based on what we would say is productive which is how how close are you to being an aggressive white man uh how well can you cosplay that archetype and it's a big reason why like emotions are not very valued like we could go into a whole thing um, but that's that's the lens that our value system operates through. And likewise, we would say, well, if you're poor, it means that you're not able to do a very good job. You're yeah. not able to be like a white man. You're not smart. You're not capable within the system. And so you deserve to have no money. And it's a really crazy way to look at things when you stand back and say, why was that the archetype that we chose? Like my ability to be as close to something that I'm not as possible, that's how much money I'm gonna have, that's how much respect I'm gonna have from other people. Um, 
yeah, there's so much I have to say about that stuff. I'm reading a really good book right now. But well, um, it's like even even when we talk about accessibility or EDI, it's always in the context of access to the labor market. Like that, the, it, like you see this time and time and again. Uh, is like success stories are like this person had a terrible disability, but look, we were able to get them a job. Or you know, like EDI is all about um, ensuring. Like we don't care about it in terms of your actual rights or place in society or What's dismantling institutions. Oh, sorry. Uh, equity, diversion, and in diversity and inclusion. Oh, oh, which is this sort of it's this corporate uh, uh, initialism that gets thrown around all the time now. It's in vogue, but like even like the hyper focus on the, those values are all within like access to the labor market, right? Like how productive can we possibly make you? And and we shouldn't you know, overlook certain people for access to certain jobs. And it's never actually in terms of addressing the core <laughs> racism that exists in every single structure in society, regardless of your ability to get a high paying job or not, you know? Um, right. And it's like, how much can this black person be like a white person? Yeah, how agreeable like, can they be? Like, how much can they use white people language? There's also a yeah. really interesting thing about the oppressed group needing to know a lot about the oppressing group and it not going the other way around. So black people know a lot about white culture and white people know almost nothing about black culture. Women know a lot about men's mental uh, functioning and emotional functioning. Men know al almost nothing about women's mental functioning uh, because they need to know well that system in order to navigate who's in charge. And this actually is nice because it brings us full circle because you know, when I talk about my uncomfortability, this is going back to the beginning of, of, of what we were talking about, my uncomfortability in these meetings. And then you read what, um, you know, uh, racialized people, uh, BIPOC people, when they feel about working from home, and they say it was like, it was an enormous relief for them, because I might feel uncomfortable for like 45 minutes in a meeting. But imagine like, if you're already trying, you know, you're already a racialized person, you're in an environment where you're, you know, you feel alone and that, you know, you don't, you don't have anyone to connect with there. And for them, like work from home is like a huge godsend. Like they said, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to them professionally. And they've been able to do, you know, express themselves creative because of that same thing, because we're all in this, like, we all measure worth by how well you're able to do like the whole shuffle and dance and smile. And, and you know, it's just like, and it's, uh, again, it comes into this, like, this thing that we never acknowledge, like you say, like the fish in the water, this just this culture of coercion that we just sort of assume we don't challenge, we don't question, um, but we just sort of have to abide by because it was there before we were born. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's 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 nuts. Um, it's so bad. The very fact that it's it is the water that we are immersed in and we can see it tells me that it is not in accordance with um, with the vibe. This is a little bit into my spirituality, but the drum that is beating is not in accordance with the water that we're immersed in now, with the sounds that we're immersed in now. And so we need to make them match. And that's why you have uh, such a, a rise of leftism that the young are not becoming more conservative as they get older, that we are having community conversations and mutual aid conversations and walkability conversations, all these things are related. And it's just people listening to the drum that is beating and saying, oh, it's everything around me is, is not right. Yeah. And it's funny, like, 
you know, you, it's, it's so weird how we frame things, you know, because I always think of the promise uh, that we, once we got to a productive stage, we would have to, we would be able to work less. Like this was seen as the natural consequence and a good sign that the economy was working at some point back, I don't know, in the 1920s or whatever. So that you know, imagine one day we would, we could work four, four day weeks or three day weeks. And maybe we would work like six hours a day instead of eight hours. Like this was seen as like the benchmark for a successful economic experiment. And now, uh, you know, people, we seem to be like asked to work more, you know, like people, it's like not even good enough. Um, we reach up and it's like the same with AI, right? Like on the one hand, AI can be seen as this terrible harbinger. And it's like, there's, it's sort of like the, the uh, uh, climate doom porn. Like you see this AI mm -hmm. doom porn, like people yeah. will aggressively be like, are you scared that AI is going to take your job in six months? And, and people are on the street, like, Totally. You know what I mean? You see this thing all the time and there's like this certain sense that we want AI to like destroy everything. <laughs> but it's like, where are like the full luxury communists coming out saying, you know, why don't we like, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe like, um, maybe AI can get us out of this, like this hamster wheel of, 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 of you know, uh, coerc coercive work and bullshit jobs uh, so that we can finally be honest and like, but my my real fear though is that we, the people who are obsessed with UBI and all this sort of thing are are um you know that we're actually signing ourselves up for like uh you know a government uh poverty stipend unless they're willing to you know what I mean it's just going to recreate the inequalities of our current system but with a small UBI you know what I mean and I feel but like if we're going to talk UBI let's be realistic the more that I learn about UBI the less I like it and the more I see yeah. it as uh, as another vote for capitalism, as another way to entrench capitalism into our lives. And under UBI, we still will not be in charge of our own well-being. Talk to anybody on Social Security and the rules around Social Security um, disability, they'll tell you that they're not allowed to go make more money. And so they are stuck in a wheel of making sure that they don't work, which is a whole mm -hmm. other problem. And so, yeah, the, you know, the drama of like, oh, we just need to give people more money. Well, that's a, that's a double down on capitalism. That's not a new well, way. Exactly. And what does it yeah. solve? It doesn't do anything. It's just like, oh, we're going to lift everyone up by this same benchmark. Um, but of course, all the same inequality will be built into the system. So if you happen mm -hmm. to go to Harvard, you'll still get your UBI, but you have an opportunity to make, you know, two, $200,000, $300,000 a year. Uh, yep. On top of that, you know, and it's like that doesn't solve anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's well, like... also, also the incentives are built into the system. That's why we we never end up with less jobs with more automation because they go, okay, great, I can just run this fifty person company with one person now, and I can create this whole new company, and then I can make people work. Like it, it the incentives are incorrect. The incentives need to go towards not working. You actually need to be punished for working somehow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's a completely, you have to think completely differently. You can't just build in things to a system already. And I don't know, some countries have found ways to, um, to build laws into capitalism that are actually somewhat meeting people's needs. Um, but it's, it's still the same. And also we always say that those countries are very um, ethnically homogenous. And so they're they're all like able to agree because there's no like out group as much as there is in our cultural melting pots of Canada and the US. Um, but again, we're getting 
pretty off topic. And I think that we have done a very nice window gaze into <laughs> the meaninglessness of work and modern capitalism. Yeah. 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 We all can't be uh, Scandinavia. Um, but you know, it's so funny. It's like, I'll just say this one thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll but you know, but that's really what the, the, what the socialist nations have figured out is like, well, we can't take away the coercive aspect of capitalism, but we can, yes. uh, we can make the things that are precarious about not having a job less terrifying. So for example, mm. okay, you might not have a job, but university tuition is free or you'll have very cheap housing. So there's less of a chance of you losing a house if you lose your job. You know what I mean? So like, it's like, yeah, you're still going to, you're, we're still going to drop you 20 feet, but there's a slightly stronger net below you, you know, but it's as, exactly as you say, it still recreates the same problem, but I, I don't think it's off topic. As I say, I, you always say that, but I disagree. I think it's all, it's all connected. It's all part of the same thing. It's so interesting. I've been such an underachiever in my life um, for kind of that very reason that I wanted to keep myself as close to the poverty line sort of as possible so that I could always do more like hustle more in order to be okay but like I I almost wanted to con condition myself to accept a very low standard of living so that I didn't have that stress and it didn't really work at all but in theory it still sounds really like a good idea to me like oh what if I just yeah. live very low and then I'll always be able to like raise the bar if I need to but anyway. well I think that's the appeal of like neo-stoicism it's like oh if, if you don't want things you don't care about not having things and it not, doesn't matter you're fine which is like Sure, I can imagine the sky's orange, but it still looks blue to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it doesn't. It sounds nice in theory, but yeah. Yeah, it's pretty hard to implement. Yeah. Well, it's been nice recording this podcast with you today. And that's where we left it. I hope you enjoyed our episode this time. I am progressively getting better at audio editing, and uh, tune in next time to see our audio get even better.
Okay. Bye. Cheers. Bye.